millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 32 in our series for 2018. And today's date is Friday, September the 21st. First, I talk to Dominic Walsh, CEO of design company Cowan Australia. It's part of a global company, and the Australian company is now integrating with the global network to help Australian businesses connect with clients overseas, particularly in China. And then I have a chat with economist Stephen Kakoulis, looking at Australia's low wages growth and what's needed to bump it up. But first, let's talk to Dominic Walsh. Dominic Walsh, Cowan is an enormous company. I mean, you, you've got offices in Beijing, Shanghai, Singapore, Ho Chi Minh City, London, and you're relaunching in Australia. How come? Uh, well, really, uh, Cowan, as, as you mentioned, is well-established overseas. So uh, we, we went into China 12 years ago, and that, that business has grown fairly significantly, uh, both in Shanghai and Beijing. And uh, more recently, we entered Singapore. Uh, also, London's uh, grown fairly significantly as well. But interestingly, in Australia, we were running under a separate brand and uh, the decision was made really to integrate more with the global business. So, uh, so really try and bring uh, the network together. Uh, but also what we're finding increasingly is Australian clients really have a great need to understand Asian markets and particularly China. 
So, uh, so really the intent was to, to integrate more with those other offices and be able to provide clients with um, a, a, a international approach which allowed us to provide a lot of insights for particularly Australian companies that are trying to launch into markets like China and, and understand the Chinese consumer and the, their changing needs because that's it's definitely an area where there's significant change and really you need to keep up with those insights because they're, they're changing on a yearly basis. So, I mean, you're a, you're a, major, you're a major design company. I mean, what, what are consumers looking for when, when, you, when you pitch your messages to them? Uh, well, it's interesting because I guess, you know, design's such a broad area in terms of um, graphic design, industrial design, uh, you know, could be fashion design or architecture or whatever it may be. I think our, our niche is definitely in that area of understanding consumer behaviour. Um, and I think it, you know, there's, there's so many broad needs that consumers really have. Um, so I guess it depends where specifically we're looking. I mean, um, we understand the supermarket very well. And in that space, I think uh, it's quite often described as the paradox of choice, where there's almost too, too many brands to choose from. Uh, and and too many uh, too many options, too many variants. So a lot of our job in that instance is really trying to simplify choice and decision making. And I think that's really, in many cases, what consumers are looking for. They're looking for simplicity, clarity, and probably uh, more so than anything, utility. I think um, in many cases, I think brands have become. Uh, probably distracted by wanting to be more than what they are. In some cases, you hear a lot about brand purpose these days where, you know, a soft drink will also save the world. And I think we need to be realistic about how much is really possible in some of these instances uh, and try and uh, bring things back to, to really, you know, what's inside the product. Is it really providing something better for a consumer? Uh, also, you know, what about uh, the usage occasion? I think Procter & Gamble always famously talk about the first moment of truth and the second moment of truth. I think the first moment of truth is when you purchase a product in store and you need to understand that well. How do you disrupt a consumer and, and help them find what they need in store? But then the second moment of truth is really where uh, loyalty is built and that's quite often around functionality, utility, you know, can someone with arthritis actually open a bottle of uh, tomato sauce, for instance, and taking those sort of things into consideration as well. So it's really about empathy. Um, and in many cases, using things like ethnographics and um, observation to really understand consumers at a deeper level. These are the major changes that you've seen in the market over the years? Uh, I think all of the these sort of approaches have always been there, but I, I must admit that I think some of some of the research techniques have um, been forgotten in some cases. So I think uh, for many years, a lot of research was really, consumer research was really based on qualitative groups, putting eight people inside a room or um, running a big quantitative study, but they didn't really provide the depth of insights that, uh, that you get from observation and ethnographics and really, you know, anthropology, I guess. Um, and if I go back to even my university days studying consumer behaviour, th those sort of things were always taught to us around, you know, observation and 
and patterns of consumer behaviour. But interestingly, those techniques, I don't think, have been used as much as they could have been in, in recent years. And I'm, I'm seeing a return to that more recently. I think you know, the advent of things like design thinking, which has been around for some time, but seeing a lot of large organisations, uh, you know, big multinational companies using design thinking as a way of working, which is really about iteration, understanding and insight. And I think as a result of that, some of these techniques are coming back where we're seeing a lot more um, observation and, and richer insights coming through, which are allowing people to, to understand consumers better. So, so I think that is a change. Um, but uh, also I think, you know, Probably the greatest change of all, I'd say, would be the role of technology and what that means in the path to purchase, because um, that's significantly changed the way the way we interact with brands. So, I mean, who are your big clients? Who are some of your big clients? Uh, so we, we work a lot with uh, clients like Johnson & Johnson, for instance, which we work with across um, markets in Asia and also in the Australian marketplace. And I think, you know, that's obviously an interesting space because... Um, you're moving into areas like um, pharmaceuticals where you've got huge regu regulatory considerations with things like the, the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Association, and uh, understanding regulation and what, what can and can't be said. Um, so that that's very interesting in that area. But we also work with um, large consumer goods companies, retailers. Uh, so it's, it's quite broad in terms of the client base. Uh, for instance, in the United Kingdom, we work with Tesco's, um, they're our largest client in that market and really working with that retailer to understand their, their in-store strategy and what they do with um, private label products as well. So, so it's fairly diverse but uh, in our client base but specialise more in understanding consumers and consumer brands and retail environments. And, of course, uh, your, your points of transaction would include areas like, say, everything from physical stores to e-commerce to uh, other touch points like packaging as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's where it gets particularly interesting. I think um, uh, I was speaking to our uh, CEO in China in the last week and they're talking about the fact that 80% of what they're doing now is really working on e-commerce briefs. And I think if you look at the data, it backs that up that, that's really where the majority of purchases are now taking place. Uh, so, so that dramatically changes the way you look at how consumers interact. I think, you know, if I was looking back 20 years ago, I'd be developing a TVC and designing some packaging and understanding the store, the physical store, and that that would be enough. Uh, whereas now, I think it's it's very omni-channel, and I think we need to understand multiple touch points. But also, uh, interestingly, the, the customer journey is no longer linear. So you may actually be looking at a mobile device, device while you're shopping in store. Uh, you might actually be purchasing online rather than uh, purchasing in a store. So there's, you really need to – there's a, a lot greater complexity to how, how people shop and how consumers interact. And I think as a result of that, a lot greater need for innovation and innovation thinking, which is really what we've tried to do. And I think probably comes back to that design thinking point I made earlier, where we really need to understand um, how consumers uh, interact, but find more innovative ways of engaging with them at multiple touch points to 
to create a consistency of experience, but also understand different ways of um, of interacting with consumers. And of course, uh, you, you, you provide Australian companies with access to big markets in Asia and China. I mean, what can Australian businesses learn from that? Uh, I think what's interesting to me is that, um, and you know, I'm, I'm, I know most people don't think of it this way, but there are instances where you sort of you get a sense that people look at Asia as a country rather than um, than a, a multitude of very complex different markets. You look at Southeast Asia alone, and um, you know what's required in Indonesia can be very different to what's uh, what's required in uh, you know modern retail in Singapore or even um, what's going on in China. And and you know that varies a lot in China between the tier one, two, and three cities and uh, different levels of. Um, sophistication in what's going on in the retail environment. I think um, so. I think there's definitely a lot to understand around different markets, different cultural insights, uh, different distribution channels in each of those markets, and also the rate of change, which I mentioned earlier. I think you know, the assumption was that Australian product, products could sell well in China because they were trusted. You've seen that in milk formula and those sort of categories. Uh, but that's that's no longer enough. Um, so you really need to understand now that in many cases a, um, a Chinese consumer will be very happy to purchase a Chinese brand, and uh, they've become a lot more sophisticated in in how they're going to market with those those local products. So that means that uh, having a trustworthy product from Australia isn't enough. We need to become more sophisticated in how we appeal to Chinese consumers. Well, Dominic, what can you tell us about Australian design? Um, no, I think the only thing I'd say there is design's quite global, obviously, in influence. So influences come from all over the place. And, you know, I think you get an Australian designer looking at, uh, you know, Japanese design, for instance, as a, as a sense of influence. And you know, there's cliches around what Australian design might be, which is, you know, meat pies and Vegemite and those sort of things, or you see that, you know, the kangaroo on Qantas or the, the yellowtail wine, which uses iconic Australian imagery. I think um, the Australian sense of design is probably becoming more sophisticated. You see brands like Aesop, which has been very successful internationally, or even the way RM Williams is now, is actually now representing its brand. I think they're taking influence from, you know, the, the colour palettes of the country. So, you know, you might have... Um, you know, earthy browns and wooden materials and natural elements being used in in uh, those products uh, marketing arsenary. Um, but it's it's really a lot more sophisticated. I think, you know, if you look at someone like a Glenn Merkett as an architect and the way he uses Australian design. Well, Dominic, it's been fascinating talking to you and, and thank you very much for your time. Great. Thanks, Leon. And now let's talk to economist Stephen Kakoulis. Stephen Kulis, uh, research from the Melbourne Institute has found that wages have grown faster than the cost of living over the past decade. They've risen 31% over a 22% growth in inflation, delivered an increase in overall cost of living standard. Uh, but that doesn't seem to correspond with uh, all the other data. What's your view about that? Oh, look, uh, yes, I've seen that report, and it, yes, it, it's correct. It's factually correct that over 10 years, which is an awfully long time, don't forget, um, Wages have outpaced the rate of inflation, so real wages have increased. So it's strictly accurate. But, but, and it's a really important um, a caveat on that uh, research, is that in the last 
few years, it's the rate of decline in real wages that's been the critical issue. That in fact, yeah, um, up until the last three years, we had wages growth uh, increasing by about 1% per annum in real terms. That is, wages were faster than inflation. But since then, we know that uh, real wages growth are only increasing by mere fractions, 0.1 or 0.2% uh, per annum. So basically no growth at all in real wages over that time. And that's what the report, uh, I think, overlooks, that it's focusing too much on the long run and ignoring what is a cyclical downturn in the wages story, and that's the thing that's been weighing on consumers and holding back the retail sector over the past couple of years. What happened eight, nine and ten years ago matters almost nothing for what's happening to consumers and retailers today. Right, right. And, of course, uh, the issue is unemployment is uh, still stuck at around 5.3%. Indeed, and, and that's the very issue, that one of the things that uh, has caused uh, the, the wage stagnation in recent times has been the persistence or the stubbornness of not only unemployment, which you quite rightly point out is 5.3%, but underemployment, that is people who have a job but want to work more hours, that's stuck above 8%, which is a very high level of uh, what we call underutilisation. So even though the, the economy is growing at a reasonable sort of pace, we saw the nice kick up in the June quarter GDP numbers uh, a few weeks ago, it really hasn't translated into a sharp and meaningful fall in the unemployment rate and that's the sort of fall that we really do need to see before we can be confident that uh, that wage earners can put their hand up for a bigger pay increase so at the moment we're seeing this um, you know, reasonable economic growth but not strong enough to generate lower unemployment and that pickup in wages that uh, that we all want to see, including our friends at the Reserve Bank. Isn't the issue actually about the number of long-term unemployed, those looking for work for more than 12 months? I mean, that seems to have grown considerably since the global financial crisis in the late 90s. Oh, yes, long-term unemployment is a real uh, structural problem. It's one of those ones where uh, if you've got a, a big pool of people who are Unemployed, and of course, in this modern era where skills are changing, yeah, very, very rapidly. If you're not still in the workforce, your ability to keep your skill uh, level up is severely constrained. So that's a that's a big problem for how we retrain, reskill, and educate uh, those people who are long-term unemployed. That's a big policy issue. But it also suggests that again, coming back to that point, where uh, unless the economy can sustain you know, three and a quarter, three and a half percent GDP growth for a couple of years, not just one quarter, but for a couple of years, you're not going to make the inroads into the unemployment rate to get it lower, to get uh, the long-term unemployed back into the workforce and to get the underemployed working more hours, that you're going to continue to see wages growth just sort of bouncing around these very low levels and barely keeping up with the rate of inflation, which I think is the central forecast of most forecasters for the next six to 12 months. And, of course, you talk about GDP. Their last, latest set of GDP numbers was quite better than expected at 3.5%, but the issue was that a lot of that came from consumers spending more and household savings uh, dropping to their lowest levels since the global financial crisis. Oh, that's a valid point. And, yes, and while we welcome the GDP numbers, you know, well above 3%, that was a nice result, there's no question. If you actually look about how it occurred, why it occurred, 
the way that the consumer or the household spending side of the economy, remember that's over 50% of GDP, it's a really big part of the economy, was driven by savings going to almost nothing so that um, we householders are adding almost nothing to savings. That's the lowest it's been in about 10 years. Normally we add to our savings each quarter, but uh, we're not now because we're funding our consumer spending. The other thing, of course, is that we rely on uh, wages growth, which we just said is very weak, and we also rely on borrowing money to fund the expenditure. And we do know that borrowing growth, that is credit growth, is is starting to slow. The decline in housing, the house price falls that we're now witnessing, um, are, are starting to make, make sure that consumers aren't borrowing as much. And in fact, there's a, some anecdotes, that, particularly on the investor finance, that they're paying back some of their uh, loans as they roll over to principal and interest. So we've got this um, shortfall in disposable cash, I suppose you could call it, that will hold back consumer spending. And for consumer spending to pick up or to maintain a, a growth rate well above 3%, which I think is a critical element in the economy growing at a faster pace, you need something to change. It's either got to be credit growth accelerating, unlikely. Uh, savings falling further, that's unlikely. You really need the wages side. We keep coming back to the wages side as a missing link and the vital element of uh, of kicking the economy higher if we're to see stronger growth into 2019. Well, the issue too is that because it's predicated on household savings shrinking, the question is how sustainable is that? And that would mean that the next set of GDP numbers are not going to be that spectacular, surely. Well, look, yes, I think that, and I think that's a really important issue too. That the uh, next quarterly GDPs, we know that retail sales are sort of softish. We know that yeah, not only house prices are starting to decline, but uh, house dwelling approvals. While there's probably a little bit of pipeline of construction to go, they're now well off the uh, the peak levels that we saw at the beginning of 2018. So it's probable that dwelling construction is going to be negative. We saw capex, private sector capex, tapering off. So we again, it's it's not a it's not a recession. Goodness no, um, but it's just that we're likely to see GDP muddling along rather than growing at a at a nice solid healthy pace. And I think that's the issue that is if we look at what the Reserve Bank's saying, they're optimistic about the outlook, but they actually want to see some runs on the board before they're confident enough to be doing anything with interest rates. They're flagging quite um, quite clearly to the market that they're on hold for, well, for a long time to come, and they actually do need to see the mix of GDP growth, uh, employment growth, the unemployment rate, all changing and all changing for the better before they're willing to um, to pull the trigger on an interest rate hike. And I guess that's why the market's pricing in no change for, well, gosh, 18 months or longer at the moment. Right. And uh, so that would mean unemployment would stay quite high for some time. Yes, it means unemployment doesn't really get a chance to break uh, below uh, 5%, which is, I think, what everybody agrees we need to see if there's going to be a um, an acceleration in wages. So we keep coming back to this wages issue. It's just not um, strong enough yet. The economy just isn't buoyant enough to allow that um, rate of unemployment to fall, which would feed into higher wages. It's a real, it's a real concern. Now, at the same time, there's been a report by Deloitte Access Economics uh, recommending they start increase new start allowance by $75 a week. They say that will lead to a boost in consumer spending, create more than 10,000 jobs, lift wages and uh, create a prosperity dividend that would see the government collect an extra billion dollars in taxes. 
look, that's a good thing. It, well, there's a social aspect to it because New Start has been very low. It's a miserable payment that we give to people as they're trying to uh, re-enter the labour market. It needs to increase from a social perspective. But as um, Deloitte Access Economics put in their uh, report, yes, it, 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 um, increasing the, the payment does actually stimulate economy. It's one of these things that we in economics have been looking at increasingly and certainly in academic literature as well where there's a strong link between allocating either social welfare payments or tax changes to the low-income earners. They have a much higher propensity to spend their money. So you give a few dollars to the low-income earners, they will spend it. The economy grows at a more rapid rate and um, you get a much more powerful effect than if you actually allocate tax changes to the to the high, middle and high-income earners. So that's going to be a, a really interesting issue of the election campaign that's, uh, that's going to be coming up in... Uh, in the next few months, yeah, what are we going to do with the tax? What are we going to see Labor and the uh, coalition parties promise on income tax? Because uh, if it's skewed to the middle to higher income earners, you're probably not going to get the same uh, stimulus to the economy. If it's skewed to the lower income earners, you'll probably get a faster economy as a result. So you're saying we need to see tax policies skewed towards helping the low, low income earners? You certainly get more impact on bottom line GDP if you have uh, income tax cuts skewed to low-income earners, anyone earning less than, say, 50000 $60,000 a year. If they get the tax cuts, that's more stimulatory than if you give the tax cuts to people earning well over 100000 a year. There's, there's no doubt about that. All the academic literature points to that. Well, that'll be a fascinating issue to watch in the lead-up to the election. Oh, yes, the election's going to be great. Uh, yeah, the government does have a little bit of a benefit. They've got lucky in terms of the iron ore and, and uh, coal prices, delivering them extra revenue. I, I think Treasurer Josh Frydenberg is going to be uh, presiding over some better budget numbers when he releases those in coming weeks and months. So that's going to be good news for, uh, for the government. It gives them a chance to get back into the game. Uh, but it's what they do with the revenue. Will they give it in income tax cuts? If so, which part of the income tax structure will get that benefit? Well... Stephen Kukoulos, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, the trade war has escalated, with President Donald Trump ordering the US Trade Representative to impose a tariff on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods, catapulting the trade war to the next level. For months, we've urged China to change these unfair practices and give fair and reciprocal treatment to American companies, Trump said in a statement. We've been very clear about the types of changes that need to be made, and we've given China every opportunity to treat us more fairly. But so far, China has been unwilling to change its practices. As President, it is my duty to protect the interests of working men and women, farmers, ranchers, businesses, and our country itself. My administration will not remain idle when those interests are under attack. The latest tariffs, along with previous rounds on US $50 billion worth of Chinese goods and metal imports, will mean over half of all Chinese goods coming into the US are subject to the duties. According to a senior administration official, the duty levelled on the incoming goods will be 10% when the measure goes into effect on September the 24th. Then the tariffs will increase to 25% at the start of 2019. The delay is partly designed to give US businesses time to adjust their supply chains. And China has hit back by imposing new trade tariffs on $60 billion worth of American goods. China will target American goods such as liquefied natural gas, which are produced in states loyal to the US president. However, in a tweet, Mr Trump warned Beijing against seeking to influence the upcoming midterm elections. 
and the world's major economies are skating on dangerously thin ice. And, according to the experts, they lack the fiscal, monetary and emergency tools to fight the next downturn. A group of top crisis veterans fear an even more intractable slump than the Lehman recession when the current ageing expansion rolls over. And that has grave implications for liberal democracy. We have no ability to turn the economy around, said Martin Feldstein, president of the US National Bureau of Economic Research. When the next recession comes, it's going to be deeper and last longer than in the past. We don't have any strategy to deal with it. Now, Professor Feldstein, a former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisers, described a bleak scenario more akin to the depressions of the 1870s or the 30s than anything experienced in the post-war era. And Australia's residential property lost a combined $13 billion in value in the three months to July, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The ABS residential property price index across the eight major cities fell 0.7% over the June quarter, to be down 0.6% over 12 months. It's the first annual fall since the June quarter in 2012. ABS chief economist Bruce Hockman said Australia's two largest cities continue to lead the fall. Sydney recorded its fourth consecutive quarter of falling property prices, down 1.2%, while Melbourne was down for the second consecutive quarter, down 0.8%. Labor has beaten the government on filling an important area of policy vacuum. It has announced a superannuation plan that would see women on maternity leave and on low pay getting topped up with super. It's aimed to bridge the superannuation pay gap between men and women. This gap in retirement savings is a big pay equality issue. Now, there have been many reports showing women are penalised in retirement when they take out time to have a baby, or maybe because they simply work in industries that are traditionally paid less. All up, it comes out to about an average of $113,000 less in superannuation. That's 40% less than men. So what Labor has done is to pledge to continue super payments for anyone on paid parental leave, dad and partner pay. Labor has also pledged to phase out the $450 minimum monthly income threshold for the super guarantee. Any future changes to superannuation would also require a published impact to women. Now, the timing of this announcement is no coincidence. It just happens to coincide with the Liberal Party struggling to come up with an answer to the lack of women MPs. It's nowhere near the 50% of the population. And the Liberals also have to work out how to deal with allegations of bullying which have been levelled by some of its female MPs. Now, Bill Shorten says Labor has supported the Trans-Pacific Partnership, in his words, somewhat reluctantly, and has promised to reform the trade deal if he becomes Prime Minister. The opposition leader said a future Labor government would renegotiate provisions in the deal that covers 11 nations to allow for labour market testing before giving jobs to foreign citizens of treaty countries. Labor waved through support of the deal last week, despite vehement opposition from the unions and elements of the left. You would have to say that we're on board somewhat reluctantly, Mr Shorten told the ABC. What we'll do is cooperate to see the positives implemented, and we're going to change the negatives if and when we're elected. One of the problems we see with it is just allowing no labour market testing to happen. What that means is that people can come in from these treaty countries and even if the employer here hasn't demonstrated a shortage of labour, 
people can still come in and take jobs. I think that's a mistake. Mrs Shorten also put pressure on the government to clarify whether the TPP would pave the way for sub-par electricians in Australia. He said he would renegotiate the terms of the deal with each individual nation rather than requiring a rewriting of a TPP. First, the government was forced to change its mind on banks and call the Royal Commission. Now, the Royal Commission is not just about finding policy remedies. The only way to change the culture of banks, insurance companies and super funds is to shame the villains. And the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is a blatant adherent to this view. In recent weeks, he stated on two occasions that he was wrong to have opposed it as a populist whinge. And then, on Sunday, he went further and announced the Royal Commission into the aged care industry. He's done that, having learnt that he has to get out in front on aged care before being dragged, kicking and screaming, as he was on banks. Now, a Four Corners episode on the aged care industry that screened on Monday night was absolutely shocking. Morrison has warned everyone to brace for what could come out in the Commission. Now, the big question remains whether the government will do the same with energy companies. Morrison has avoided the question when asked if he'd flagged the Royal Commission. His reply, I just said I wasn't ruling it out. Still, energy companies are being told behind the scenes that if prices do not start coming down, the government will bring out the big stick. And the government has plenty of reasons to do that, with an election-losing deficit and a raft of vulnerable seats. And the Financial Services Royal Commission has claimed another senior executive scalp after National Australia Bank announced its Head of Consumer and Wealth, Andrew Hagger, who was widely seen as a contender for the job as CEO, will leave the bank. It's a massive scalp for the Royal Commission. Former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird will replace him, moving from head of NAB's business bank to become Chief Customer Officer. Mr Hagger was holed over the coals during the last round of the Royal Commission over a no-fee-for-service scandal that has resulted in the corporate regulator taking legal action against NAB and tarnished its reputation. After the resignation of Anthony Carl earlier this month, NAB also said that Rachel Slade will take up a new role of Chief Customer Experience Officer. David Gall will move to Chief Customer Officer of Corporate and Institutional Banking, and Sean Dooley will replace Mr Gall as Chief Risk Officer. The Royal Commission hearings earlier in the year also claimed the scalps of AMP Chief Executive Craig Miller and AMP Chairman Catherine Brenner. And Kathmandu's net profits surged 32.8% to New Zealand, $50.5 million. That's Aussie $46.4 million in the 12 months to July. There was the outdoor clothing and adventure wear retailer cutting back on discounting and selling more items at full price. The result, which fell slightly short of consensus forecasts of New Zealand $51.6 million, was underpinned by strong sales growth in Australia and fatter gross margins. And finally, TBG Telecom has reported flat full-year sales and a dip in statutory profit, with the telco hitting significant headwinds from migration of customers from fixed-line services to NBN. Revenue was flat at $2.5 billion, up just 0.2%, and statutory profit fell 4.1% to $396.9 million. Now, revenue at all Australia's telco is suffering as the NBN rollout sees fixed lines and accompanying revenue retired. TPG said its full-year underlying earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation 
increased by a modest $6.1 million to $841.1 million, making 2018 the 10th consecutive year of underlying earnings growth. The main contributors to this growth came from the fibre to the building service and cost savings from the integration of IINED. And that's it for this week. And next week, I have a terrific interview with Andrew Tweedy, founder of Sydney-based tech startup Native Empire. These guys have developed a platform called MapCats, which allows for highly sophisticated geotargeting and mapping of social media activity and discussions. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.